I want to invite up Jonathan and Zoe to do our Advent lighting for this Sunday. Hey, y'all. I'm Jonathan. I'm Zoe, if we have not met you guys. Um, we've been attending Redeemer since July, um, so hello if we haven't met you. Um, and we'll be introducing Advent uh, for this year. So Advent is a word that means coming or arrival. It is a four-week period in which the church remembers the promises of Jesus' first coming and looks forward to his promise to come again. Thus, Advent is a season of tension. Christ has come, and yet not all things have reached completion. Yet as we live in that tension, we do so with the realization that Christ has come, and the flickering candles we light remind us, as John's Gospel tells us, that in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1, 4 through 5. As we begin our journey through Advent, we do so by lighting the first candle, which represents hope. This candle is sometimes called the prophet's candle, for it points back to the prophets of the Old Testament, especially Isaiah, who waited in hope for the Messiah. As we look back at the first coming of Jesus, we are reminded of God's faithfulness to his promises, and therefore, we have a certain hope in his promise to return. Would you now pray with me? Dear God, your promises stand unshaken through all generations. Please renew us in hope that we may be awake and alert, watching for the glorious return of Jesus Christ, our judge and our savior. Give us grace to heed the warnings of the prophets that we might forsake our sins, that we may greet you with joy in the coming of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I'd now like to invite up our scripture readers for today. Micah 2, 12 to 13. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob, I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Mark, Mark chapter 1, verse 1 to 15. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and, pro and proclaimed um, baptism of repentance of the of the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were, and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes the one who is mightier than I, 
the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by, the, by John in the, in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out to the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repeat and believe in the gospel. All right, I think we're good. All right, sweet. Uh, well, hey, good morning. My name is Nate. It's good to be with you uh, on this first Advent. Uh, as already has been noted, um, you know, this is a time of season of preparation. It's a season in which we look back at the first coming of Christ, and it's a season of preparation as we await his second coming. And um, if I could, you know, kind of like throw out this key word for the whole series, it's summed up here, but it's the word hope. And, you know, that word is used pretty casually in our day. We throw it around, right? Um, like, I could hope that the Iowa Hawkeyes could beat the Michigan Wolverines. I could have hoped that. Um, but that would have been more of like a wish fulfillment, right? You could say, you know, I, I hope I'm able to get into that school, or I hope I'm able to get a good job after graduation. Uh, you know, we, we say things like these, and there's a certain aspect where that's true, but it's, it's a wish fulfillment. But the kind of hope that the Bible talks about is really summed up well by a man named David Powell. And he puts it this way. Hope is a present reality living in light of the future that affects every part of your life. Um, David uh, is a, he's a professor, but he, a couple years ago, he's sharing this story, and he, he's, a, he's a smaller guy. And where he was living in Chicago, uh, it just so happened he was living next door for a couple years to one of the linemen of the Chicago Bears. And so, you know, they didn't talk a lot, but, you know, you could, as you know, in condos or apartments, you get to see some things, observe some things. Well, this lineman uh, actually did rather well in his first couple of years. He's on a rookie contract. And he read in the papers after his first couple of years that his neighbor, this lineman, had signed a new contract for $10 million. And um, David said his life began to change. And this was before he got, you know, anything, any of that money, right? He just signed the contract. No checks in the mail yet, but he signed the contract. And he said he started driving a different car. He got a different girlfriend. And of course, eventually, he moved out of the condo, right? He got a, a better house. And think about this. Nothing had inherently changed in this person's life, in this lineman's life. He hadn't got a penny of it, and yet right in that moment, in the present moment, he was living in light of what was coming, because he knew it was coming. And that's, that's a great picture of what it means to have hope. 
there's something deeper, right? You know, as we journey through Advent this year, we're going to be in the prophet Micah. And I'm really excited about this because um, there's a number of reasons for this. But you think about this word hope, the context of Micah is a time in which there would be no reason for hope. Everything around that's happening is dark. It's not good. And in fact, Micah gives many dire warnings. But also, he gives words of comfort and hope. And there are actually four times in the book of Micah in which he speaks and he points forward to the first Christmas. So we're going to spend one week, each week of these four passages. And here's our hope. That we would begin to see more clearly this one ancient hope that's found in Jesus. And that that one ancient hope would shape us. Would shape our present reality. That it would press into the very places that we do day in and day out, and that we'd be changed. And this morning we're going to begin to see in this first passage that this one ancient hope, it sets us free. So three things this morning. We're going to see our need for freedom. Secondly, we're going to see the promise of freedom. And then thirdly, we're going to see the life of freedom. So let's pray and we'll get in. Father, as we come to you this morning in the midst of days that can at times both personally, culturally, socially seem very hopeless, would you set our eyes on you? Would you help help us to build our lives on this one ancient hope And as we see him, would you change us? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, hey, firstly, our need for freedom. Um, The context for Micah is, is one in which there's actually an increasing gap between the wealthy of the day and the poor. And in average, it was an agrarian society. And so you had these wealthy landowners, and then you had these small farmers. And over time, it began to get more and more increasingly of a gap. And there's a lot of different reasons for this. One was inheritance laws. And so that would divide up the land and business. Another was the population was increasing, and therefore there was more people to feed and less land. And on top of this, you had taxation. And so if you're a farmer, you had less ability to handle the risks that, you know, were prevalent in that day and age. So in response to this, they, the, the private small farmers relied increasingly on loans from the upper class. This would be officials, wealthy merchants, large estate holders. And what happened is the upper class began exploiting their power. And they did this through exacting really harsh laws of credit that would be very high interest rates. And this is actually explicitly forbidden in the book of Leviticus, but they did it anyway. 
And here's what happened, as you know, when you get in debt, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And so, you know, you'd, you'd have a bad year, have to take out another loan, and by the time you took your loan, you're already paying interest on your next year's crop. And then it would get worse. And then you'd have to begin to sell family members into slavery. And then, by the very end, the farmer himself was enslaved. And so, over a couple centuries... The upper class acquired the land, the farmer, his family as slaves on what used to be their own land, and the upper class lived in the city just basically buying their time, living luxuriously. And God was not pleased. you know, you read through the book of, of Micah, you, you see this multiple places, but, but listen to Micah 2, 1 through 3. This is where God threatens terrible, awful things. He says this, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it's in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses, and they take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, Against this family, I am devising disaster. God is going to bring on these individuals misery and pain. He's bringing judgment. And here's the reason why. It's greed. They love money more than they love God. And it's made them ruthless. And it's destroying Society. It's destroying the city. Now, you may ask for a moment, well, what does this have to do with us, right? Listen, if you were an average Madisonian, uh, you would probably point out, and not wrongly, potentially, the systemic evil of exploitive business practices. You could probably point out the greed that's taking place in various places of our cultural moment. And you wouldn't be wrong. But there's something deeper we have to ask ourselves if we're willing to entertain the question. And here's what I mean. Uh, Several years ago, um, Tim Keller tells a story about how he's doing um, some talks on the seven deadly sins. It was for a, a breakfast. And his wife, Kathy, said, I bet you the week you deal with greed you have your lowest attendance. And so, you know, the series went on, and for lust and wrath and pride, you know, it was packed out, you know. And sure enough, when he gave his talk on greed, it was the lowest attendance. And you know why? Because no one thinks they're greedy. Uh, Years ago in a Wall Street Journal article, Robert Williams, who's senior fellow at the time, was a senior fellow at the tax policy, was asked this question, who is wealthy? And he said, that's a great question. It depends on where you live and with whom you compare yourself. And the shorthand was basically this. It's always the person above you. If you make 50,000 a year, well, it's it's those that make 60. And so what happens, right, is what we do is we remove ourselves from the idea that greed might be a part of our lives. And here's what's interesting. If you were to simply lay out the amount of times that Jesus talked about various things, 
Do you know what he talked about the most? The most thing he talked about was money and possessions. And what's really interesting is, in Keller's helper, he says, so here's, here should be the hypothesis. The starting point should be, this could easily be a problem for me. So there's this interesting thing Jesus says in Luke 12. In verse 15, he says this, Watch out, be on your guard against all, and here's the operative word, kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. Did you hear that word, kinds of greed? Let's put it this way. We all have cars, right? Different kinds of cars. There's different kinds of greed. Uh, David Paulson has this really helpful, like threefold description of some various kinds. He says there's covetous greed, which says, I want my share of what's fair. And it's angry and it's manipulative. Secondly, there's satisfied greed, which says, I'm set. I can kick back. I've got plenty. And then there's anxious greed, which is saying, what if I don't have enough? Listen for a moment to what Jesus says right before he talks about all kinds of greed. He says this in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Did you catch what Jesus said there? Let me just simplify it. Jesus is saying in one way or another, if you love money more than God, you're not free. You're serving something. And here's the thing. In the prophet Micah, in his days, he's calling out to those in positions of power and wealth who were in flagrant, and I'm saying flagrant violation of the covenant God had made with them. What is he doing? He's warning them, but ultimately he's trying to call them back to who they were meant to be. They were not called to serve wealth. They were not called to serve money. They were called to serve him. And here's the question, right? This is the question that we've been asking this whole time. Like, could it potentially, does, does money potentially have a power in my life, over my life? And here's the thing. If, if at the end of the day this morning, you don't see it, let me just tell you, you're in danger. It's got you. And if you see it, well, welcome to the club, Right? And this is why, see, this is why, like, we need a way out, right? Like, this is, this is, no one's excluding me. Like, 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 we need a way out. If it has control, if it has some sort of a power that asserts over us, then, then what's the way out? Well, that's the second thing. There's this, this promise of freedom in the passage. It's, you know, it's incredible because as you're reading through the, the book of Micah, there's all these words of judgment. And yet, all of a sudden, out of the blue, the two verses that were just read in the book of Micah, God speaks through Micah, and Micah gives us two images. And the first is an image of a shepherd. So look at verse 12 again, what it says. God says this through Micah, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them before, or excuse me, I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. 
And here's the context for those words. Um, the kingdom of Assyria, the kind of the arch rivals, the enemies of um, Israel are advancing. In fact, they've already come down in the northern tribes, and now they're coming down to the southern tribe, the southern part of the kingdom. And actually, this is God's instrument of judgment on his people. They're wreaking havoc. And it won't be long before they're on the doorsteps of Jerusalem. And my good friend Brian Gregory summarizes this vision so well, because here's here's what he says. And yet, it's in the middle of this crisis that God addresses the remnant of Israel, that is, those who are still left. And he tells them that he will gather them together like a sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. And the image is that the Lord is like a faithful and caring shepherd who will be attentively watching and guarding his flock. And if a wild animal or predator were to begin approaching, the shepherd would gather them into a pen in order to keep them safe. And the Lord tells them, his remnant, that's exactly what he's going to do with them. Like a faithful and caring shepherd, he's going to gather them inside the city walls of Jerusalem and keep them safe from the approaching Assyrian army. That's the first image. The second image is the image of a king. So verse 13, it says this, He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them. And this is a picture of a victorious king a king who would break through the gate, which means Israel would not stay inside the walls, but that there would be a decisive victory and this king would lead them out in a procession. And at this point, the original audience of Micah would have heard that. And they would have thought, well, that's just King Hezekiah. Right? That's our king. He's the one who's going to do this. But then at the very end of verse 13, notice what Micah says. It says this, the Lord is at their head. And that means, that means this, the image of a king that will lead them out is none other than God himself. In 2 Kings 18 and 19, we read about how these promises were first fulfilled. The context is, and then an Assyrian general shows up in the middle of the city and begins to taunt those in Jerusalem and Hezekiah. He says things like, has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the king of Assyria? There's no way that your God can do that. And then Hezekiah, you know what he does? He prays. And that night, the angel of the Lord passes through the Assyrian camp and he puts 185,000 soldiers to death. And they wake up in the morning, those that are left go home and those in the city of Jerusalem walk out victorious, not having lifted a sword. And see, here's the thing. Over the years in Israel's history, as they began to put together this hope of a Messiah, of a future king that would come, as they look back on the words of Micah, they begin to see in this passage how this future king would do just that. That the future king would be a shepherd king who would gather and protect 
and that he'd bring about a victory that would defeat all of their enemies and that would lead them out in victorious procession. Which is why the beginning of Mark's gospel, which was read this morning, is so significant. Did you hear what it said at the beginning? The very first line is this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Christ, it's the Greek form for Messiah. It's an announcement that the King has come. And the following verses that quote Isaiah are that this King has come to liberate a people and set them free. And Mark is saying, he's come. In other words, Jesus embodies the faithful shepherd king who comes to gather and protect and deliver. And how does he do it? He does it by laying down his life. He does it by laying down his life through his death on the cross. And what does he do? He pays for the sins of all of his people, even the sins of greed and idolatry, all the ways we love money more than him. And he bodily rises from the grave and he now leads his people in a procession of victory. In other words, this one ancient hope that the prophet Micah points to is that the path to freedom is in Jesus. The path to freedom of loving anything more than God is actually found in relying on the faithful shepherd king who has come to deliver you from that which you were enslaved. Do you know this hope? Have you stopped trying to free yourself? Have you learned to rely and trust on the one who has come to gather you and set you free? Have you, have you worked it into your life? It's not merely a side project, but it's, it's beginning to work its way at the very center. In other words, are you working out this hope in the everyday? What might that look like? You know, if biblical hope is living in the present moment in light of what's coming, that changes every aspect of our life, what would it look like if we actually lived it out? You know, it's interesting. The prophet Micah actually doesn't leave us without a clue. He's very clear. Later on in the prophet Micah, in Micah 6, 8, it's kind of a, more of a famous verse, but this is what he, he writes he says this, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You know, I always hate getting to the end of a message and feeling like there's another message that could be just done on this particular text. But in the final few minutes, let me just share a few thoughts here. When God says to act justly and love mercy... It means the gospel creates a fundamental shift in how you view the money and possessions that you have. Think about it for a moment. Those in Micah's day, what were they doing? They were using their money and possessions for personal fulfillment and advancement. That's how they used their money and possessions. But when God says that actually is to acting justly and loving mercy, he's saying this, you view your money and possessions now as instruments and things to serve others around you. That term to love mercy, it, 
That mercy is the term hesed. It means this steadfast love, this faithful love. And that means you press God's love into every corner of society. That's actually what it means. In other words, to live out this hope means from your head, how you view what you have is to serve others, not to serve self. And that's really the question. Is that, is that how you and I view it? As instruments to serve others or as means to personal fulfillment and advancement? And if so, how is that reflected in our budget, in our bank account, in our credit card account, right? I imagine if you're like me, there's this, there's this tension, there's a conviction. There's perhaps evidence of that in our lives, but also much room to grow. I was thinking this week, honestly, like there's Black, this is always like Black Friday, Cyber Monday, right? And you have all those emails flooding in. And here I am, I'm like so aware of what's on sale. And then I get to Giving Tuesday and I'm like, I don't really want to read my email today. That's just going to create a lot of guilt. Right? Isn't that interesting? And I'm like, wait, wait, hold on. How am I living? So let me give you two closing thoughts. One practical and then one theological. One practical is this. Can I just encourage us as a congregation to have the conversation? If we're going to live out this hope, particularly with money and possessions, can we have the conversation? And, and maybe this is with a trusted friend. Maybe this is within like, you know, maybe like city group life. But here are two questions you could ask or think about. Firstly, where do you see that work in your life? What's, what's the evidence where you go, hey, actually, I see some aspects of my life where we are using our resources and funds for the service of others. But secondly, just be honest, where are you struggling to grow? Where's there room to grow? And listen, there's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all. Listen, every one of us is in a different season of life, and therefore, this takes wisdom, but we got to have the conversation. And I would just say this, if you even are seeking counsel, thinking about like, what do I do here in this situation? I, I'll just say we've got some great people around that I could reference uh, that can help you think through some of the things where you're at. So just hit me up on Slack, whatever. I'll send you their way. Lastly, theological. The last part of Micah 6.8 says to walk humbly with God. And again, there could be a whole lot of iteration of what that means, but let me just put it this way. Walk. To walk humbly, it it implies like a daily thing. It's like when you wake up tomorrow, it's a walk. And it means to listen to God. So what is he saying? Well, let me put it this way. Years ago in the in the like financial downturn of 2008, there was a financial advisor who had lost a lot of money. And, you know, during that time, there was actually a lot of individuals who lost a lot of money in the finance district who actually ended up just killing themselves. A few notable ones. And this person had lost a lot of money as well. And yet three years before the crisis hit, this man had become a Christian. And he made this statement. He said this, If this had happened to me before I became a Christian, I would have hated myself. It would have driven me back to the bottle and maybe to suicide. So what had changed? Here's what changed. 
Because before he became a Christian, his sense of worth was found in making money. But the gospel had shifted his identity, changed it. His status, his significance, his security was found elsewhere. And it was still hard, right? But it didn't crush him. You see, that's the deal, right? To learn to walk humbly with God is to learn to build your life on the one ancient hope of a God who has come in Jesus, who has lived and died and risen for you and set you free and, has, and is now leading you and has defeated everything that can actually hurt you. Let's pray. Father, this morning, um, we need your help. It is apparent. Lord, help us to see the ways that um, our money and our possessions have become the places where we find our worth and our significance or our security. And Lord, we thank you that you are gracious and kind to us, that you rescue us from that. And we pray for your kindness and your spirit to be at work, even to give courage to have conversations, to work through this, to grow in this as a congregation. Lord, we want to be a community that sees what you give us, not for ourselves, but rather as stewards to serve you and to serve those around us. For the sake of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.